0: This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY, the podcast for writers on how to live the writing life. I'm Marion Roach Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is writer Matt Mendez. He's the author of Barely Missing Everything, his debut novel, and the short story collection Twitching Heart. Barely Missing Everything has been called a searing portrait of two Mexican-American families by Publishers Weekly, and accessible and artful in a starred review from Kirkus. It was named the 2019 Best YA Book by Kirkus, Seventeen Magazine, NBC Latino, and Texas Monthly, and was a Georgia Peach Book Award for Teen Readers Nominee. Awarded second place in the International Latino Book Awards, a Junior Library Guild Selection, and a Land of Enchantment Black Bear Book Award winner. His new book is The Broke Hearts, just out from Athenaeum. Welcome, Matt.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Well, it's a joy to have you here. Your first published work is a collection of short stories titled, Twitching Heart, written from the working class Barrios of El Paso, a place that doesn't get much coverage in American literature. And every writer and writing teacher knows the adage, write what you know. So if you come from a place that's not covered in literature, Talk to me about how you acquired the vision to write from there.
1: Quite frankly, that's where I'm from. And, Mm -hmm. you know, going to school and learning to write, you hear that adage, write what you know all the time. And I think when you think about your family and your life and when you're learning to write, you quickly discover as you're writing, you don't really know what you think you know. (laughs) You know what I mean? Which is such a fun thing to discover and a humbling thing to discover as you're writing. Because as you start to maneuver through stories and you start to learn your craft, you realize you don't know a lot about writing. And when you write literary fiction, when you write contemporary fiction, you also learn to discover that about life itself. Because that's what contemporary fiction is. It's about an exploration about Family, it's an exploration about relationships and, you know, tough relationships and about tough life lessons and the things you think you're writing about and you're writing towards. You realize I don't know exactly what it means to be married or to raise children or about coming of age, which is what I ended up writing more with YA in mm-hmm. my current work. You realize I don't really know exactly what it is, what it means to grow up or to be at these moments. And that's kind of a, a delight and a surprise, which is really what you want as a writer is to be surprised when you're writing because you know that's what your readers going to get when you're writing. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was kind of like these two tracks that I was on when I was learning to write and, you know, trying to figure out the craft and then taking kind of that advice of writing what you know and realizing like, oh, I also don't know these things about life and I don't know what these characters are actually going through, even though when I started, I really thought that I did and then soon discovered that I didn't. And to me, that's just exciting.
0: (laughs) So it's more like writing from what you don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. I kind of like that. Somebody said that to me recently in an interview and I thought, oh, that is so much better. So much better, because I think we all talk the same way in these sort of sentence fragments. We say things like, oh, you know, that restaurant last night was so great. It was so great. You've got to go there. And you've learned nothing, right, from what I just described. Or, But when we sit down and write, we dive in. And and I think what I'm, I'm trying to get at in the first question is just that the idea that like, th- this is not a place that a lot of people have covered. And so you answered it so beautifully, but it's where I'm from. And you write from there, even if it's not a place that you've located on the shelves prior to this, in the bookstore or in the library. And going into YA or young adult is fascinates me that you these two novels are are both young adult and told through the lens of Latinx culture. And I can't say it better than the great writer Sandra Cisneros says that when she writes about you, Matt Mendez writes on Target about people who are barely surviving in an America, all too familiar to those who live on the borderlands. And she goes on to say that you make room for them on the pages of American literature. So let's talk about making room for people. How do you define who you are making room for in your work?
1: Honestly, what I'm making room for is readers. So as a writer, I think it's our job to tell stories and to make room for readers who don't have stories in books. So as a a young person, I didn't find myself in stories, and I really didn't grow up in a world of books. I didn't even really think about books. Like, my parents weren't readers. I didn't have aunts and uncles who were readers. My grandparents weren't these big families of readers. We didn't consume stories in that way. Mm-hmm. We would watch movies and there'd be velas. And so there were stories around us, but mostly our stories were told by family members and they would, we would sit around and we would talk and we would joke and we would laugh and we'd make each other cry. And there was song and music and we would tell these stories in these really vivid ways. And that's kind of how we would connect with each other. So we had story, but what we didn't have was like the written word and we didn't have literature. And it was just this thing that, was missing that we didn't know was missing. Mm. And it wasn't until I was in, an adult and in college that I discovered books and discovered Sandra, who was, you know, probably my most influential writer. I discovered her. I discovered Nagoberto Gilb. And it was in, this, in these classes where I was studying writing. I, I really like one of my main characters and Barely Missing Everything who wants to be a filmmaker. And I had the same aspirations when I was younger. And I was taking screenwriting classes and I was taking creative writing classes as a way to kind of teach myself how to write screenplays, which is you know Mm -hmm. kind of a very secure route to kind of learn how to do that, where I had a creative writing teacher who kind of pointed me in the direction of literature and kind of gave me books and kind of shepherded me through that, where I discovered all these really great writers and I discovered books and novels and short stories. And now when I write, I found room for myself. I found place in stories and place in literature and making room for my younger self is why I've kind of chosen to write YA and why I feel kind of compelled to tell these coming of age stories because it's important for the world that I grew up in to kind of bring it back to your first question is to make room for my younger self about my home and El Paso and what coming of age is in you know, the desert southwest and, and El Paso and in the frontera and to kind of have these experiences be read by, you know, younger versions of myself and these young, you know, Latino, Latina kids growing up so they can have the experience that I didn't have.
0: Yeah, that's lovely. Making room for your, your younger self is a beautiful phrase. And my, my audience is, is writers, and I think that's going to invite a whole lot of people to type, today as they listen to this and I thank you for that. I, I think that the um, the idea of, of the education fascinates me. I find that reading screenplays and writing screenplays, which is something I'd spent an early part of my career doing, was a great way to learn how to write dialogue. So can you talk just a little bit about the influences that you've kind of picked up, you know, if you think of the things we get early, but that we still have on us, is that one of them? Is the screenplay something that informed the work that you're doing now?
1: Absolutely, i have always been kind of fascinated by the rhythm of really fast conversations. So, you know, I watched a lot of movies growing up and I just have really funny friends and really funny family members. So I was always kind of drawn to conversation and the way people speak. And in the 90s, I think a lot of the movies that came out there were really talky, you know, like Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez movies. They always had this really kind of witty back and forth banter. So I've read a lot of those screenplays and just a lot of them are really dialogue heavy and the back and forth banter just really snappy. So I think in a lot of my work, I have what I think is pretty good repartee and really back and forth dialogue where it's a lot of it's conversational, but it's also very stylized where you remove the ums and the pauses and you keep kind of a frenetic energy that moves back and forth in this very, you know, riderly way. I think when we sit down to write, dialogue can become clunky and expositional and not to be super technical, but if you want your dialogue on a page to move, those are the kind of things you want to stay away from so you're not writing like crime procedurals and you want to kind of capture the energy that you have when you're talking with people and we're really funny and I think your dialogue should be funny and move the story forward without explaining and to me, movies do that really, really well, really good movies do. Yes. Where they're funny and engaging and entertaining and not explaining. And I think movies do that really, really well. And I've always wanted to incorporate that into, you know, the dialogue that I do when I'm writing stories.
0: I think it's a great lesson for people. And the other great lesson that I I think people can pick up reading your, your books, reading your short story collection, reading these two YA novels is how you characterize people. Your characters are beautifully wrought. So let's talk about characterization. Late in the opening scene of The Broke Hearts, your fine new book, you describe Danny, a main character, this way by writing, quote, things Danny cared about had a way of vanishing on him. It made caring a gamble. These are two great sentences that sit right on the nose of the reader like a lens, defining Danny and propelling us into caring about what is at stake for him. So let's talk about characterization, as I said. I'd love your take on what considerations go into expressing to the reader who each individual is in a story. That takes
1: a a lot of drafting, even like two small little lines like that requires you to just to think. Like those those small two little lines were, you know, used to be three or four pages of describing and telling what Danny cared about as a character and as a person. I think when you're able to condense a character into a couple of lines of what's really, really important, I've always get excited as a writer when I'm able to do that, when I'm Mm -hmm. able to finally lock that down. And I know when I read something like that, when another writer does it, I'm always like, Oh, how do they do that? It's such a magic (laughs) trick. (laughs) <laughs> and, but and thank you so much for pointing that out and for the compliment. I always when I read other writers and I'm reading like an Angie Cruz novel or a Manuel Munoz collection of short stories, I'm always like really, really amazed at how they're able with the economy of space to do that. Because I always feel like it takes me paragraphs to get there. And then early drafts, it's always paragraphs to get there. And mm-hmm. then understanding your character and their choices and you know, the age of your character, you're eventually able to kind of get there. And Danny, you know, he's young, he's coming of age, and things are always changing. So like, that's just kind of the mindset of a young character, and things always seem to be vanishing when you're young. And when you're changing, and when you're graduated from high school, and the life you just had is no longer the life you're leading. So of course a young person would feel like things are changing and that something new is always going to be a gamble. Mm-hmm. And to me, that just kind of puts you in, if you understand where your character's footing is at and what their fears are, and characters, that's kind of where they're at. They're afraid, they're tentative. And it's kind of understanding where their footing is will allow you to kind of write to what they're afraid of and what risks they're going to take or not take in the danger they're kind of, in. will kind of help you kind of uh, understand your character and characterize them a little easier although it'll take you mountains and mountains of drafts to get there.
0: (laughs) Where their footing is is a great navigational tool. And the kindness and generosity you've just shown by admitting that those two sentences began as pages and or many paragraphs is true, too. It's so much like cooking. If you... If you braise something, you know, put it in the oven for a really long time, and you get that amazing taste that comes from only cooking down, you know, you have to cook down a bottle of red wine and a quart of chicken broth to get this like half a cup of this totally sticky, wonderful, like, completely ambrosia like delicious thing. That's what it is. And I think a lot of writers, younger writers, newer writers, don't believe it. They they are going to say, wow, those two sentences, I could never do that. But what you just said is you can, but you're going to start with two pages. And then it's going to be about getting your footing about your need to to define Danny. And these things have a way of vanishing on him. And it made caring a gamble. I can feel the distillation in that, but I love the idea that it starts big to get to the small. You're absolutely right. But getting the footing, that's that's lovely. That's very generous. You also do this great thing in this book, what I call devices, but people have a million words for these things. So you utilize the traditional narrative, of course, but you throw in screenplay that one character, JD, is writing throughout the book, and flash fiction. And the combo works beautifully. But I know from my own adventures in writing and working with writers, which I do all day, that just as quickly as a great structure device pops into your head, we totally talk ourselves out of it. We go, oh no. I've never seen anybody do that. I can't do that. Or we say, I've never seen anybody do that. Can I do that? Or whatever. But you went ahead and did it, and it made it onto the page, and your publisher published it. It's great. It works. It furthers the story. It drives home the characterization. It does everything you, I think, intended it to do. But talk to me a little bit about when those structured things pop into your head. Do you... just? Shoulder forward or do you have the confidence or are you like me and say, oh, I don't know if I can do that?
1: <laughs> it was uh, it was kind of a risky gamble. I felt like very much like Danny where I was taking a gamble <laughs> writing this novel because uh, it was, you know, I wrote it in 2020. So everything was kind of up in the air and things were, you know, everything seemed like a gamble in 2020 when I really sat down and kind of plotted out what I was going to do with this novel and, you know, normally I have a certain amount of friends that I can trust to read and kind of look things over. It. And the first person to read this novel was my editor. Mm. And I didn't, didn't give it to anyone else to read. And I, as I sat down and started to work and was really kind of in the middle of the novel, you know, these different kind of literary devices and things I was working with just kind of took shape. And it, the story itself felt really organic with how the structure of the story started to work. Like a character would make a choice and a device would kind of pop up and like the needs of the characters seemed to drive the devices and the choices I was making. So it didn't feel like I was contriving a story Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in order to like to make a metafiction or to try to create a world that I wanted these characters to inhabit. The characters seemed to kind of like pull me into this kind of direction and this yeah. world I was making because it was kind. Of, so this book is it's a standard old novel, but it's a companion piece to Barely Missing Everything. So the world of the past story, you know, kind of infuses this book. So it seems like it's it's a continuation of a of a universe of story. They butt up against each other and influence each other. So it just seems to like evolve into what the Brokarts is now and. It's a continuation mm-hmm. of Barely Missing Everything. So to me, it just feels like a really organic kind of evolution. So the book feels really natural to me in a way that I just trusted myself that if it didn't work, my editor would tell me it didn't work. And she was really supportive and really embraced the structure right away. So I felt confident in revision that the structure itself was sound. And luckily it works. And I love screenplays and I love writing and flash fiction and just the economy of space and how lyrical you can be and how how well you can just kind of free yourself to just, you know, dabble with writing something that's beautiful and kind of profound and be lyrical. And to mm. me, I just had the space to do that in a way that my editor just really gave me the freedom to try to play with things as a writer that maybe you don't always get in a traditional novel.
0: yeah. And that's wonderful, and I wanted to mention that we, we met some of these characters previously in, in your debut novel, Barely Missing Everything, that we now get to continue on with in The Broke Hearts. So let's talk about staying with characters. When and how did you determine that you weren't done with them? Or were you always planning a follow-up? Or is this a series? Or a lot of people want to write contiguous story or continuing story, but again, they think, oh no, you know, I, I guess I better try to get it all in one book. Talk to me about moving on with the same piece, some of the same people.
1: So I had always wanted to write this as a standalone novel, and I wanted to kind of take Danny, who was a minor third non-point of view character from *Barely Missing Everything*, kind of write a standalone novel from him, just a single point of view novel. And I wanted to write a pretty basic, straightforward novel from him. He was going to be a first-generation kid. Who was going to go to college. And I was very interested in that kind of singular story. His dad was a retired army sergeant. And I was really interested in that dynamic in that story. And then as I started writing, JD, who was one of the main characters from the first story, just popped up in the story. And he became just this dominant character that just would not go away. He was just super pesky. <laughs> <laughs> He was such a big part of, of the previous novel, the previous story that he just kept intruding on the story to the point. where I was like, well, I guess he's a main character now. So then I had two point of view characters and then the Sarge, who was a main character in the Broke Hearts, but his story is told through these beautiful flash fiction pieces. So then he became a point of view character and then the screenplay became part of the story. And then all these different elements just started mixing together and it just became this companion piece that mm-hmm. that the Broke Hearts is now. And they're dealing with the aftermath of barely missing everything in this way that I didn't quite anticipate when I started. So I just kind of trusted myself and my instinct that, hey, these, this isn't what I wanted to do when I started. But as I kept going, I was like, well, just trust yourself that, hey, these elements keep presenting themselves. This is kind of where your subconscious is leading you. Just keep going and don't try to force this preconceived idea that I had and just kind of trust what you're doing. And I think that comes with experience as a writer. I think younger me would have tried to force a story, which is what I used to do. It was like, no, this is where I started. This is where I want to end. And I would kind of shoehorn an ending. And this one just kind of organically kind of move forward. And I think I've been doing this long enough that I kind of trust the process and how I can write myself through these kind of tight corners I put myself into.
0: I love the word trust. And I think it's a complicated process. You write from, as we discussed, as we opened this conversation, from a place that hasn't gotten a lot of literature, you take on how difficult it is to make it in life when your life is uh, what we sometimes refer to as brown, when you, the brown lives, the people from the Southwest, the people that are not as reported in literature and are being reported in literature more often... But how when these light of are don't matter. I mean, that's one of the remarkable things that you got me to think about as I read Barely Missing Everything, your debut novel. And as you just said, you, you wrote your new book, The Broke Hearts in 2020, but it's not possible not to talk about 2023 now. We're... We're just a few days after Amanda Gorman's inaugural poem was unshelved and made unavailable to children of a certain age in Florida. We're amid lists of banned books. We have a lawsuit brought by Penguin Random House in, you know, uh, fighting um, the banning. And my audience has writers, many of whom want to write what they know as we get back to what we were talking about initially. But what they know, domestic violence, institutional racism, fear of others, code switching, women's rights... I could go on and on. What they know might get them taken off the shelves. So talk to me about that trust thing, that trust that this is the story, this is what I'm going to write, and what? No matter what?
1: Yes, no matter what. Yeah. So for me as a writer, me and the page, I'm always going to write what I want to write. And then to me, advocacy is separate. Pushing for civil rights, pushing for to stop book bans, to push against, you know, this encroaching fascist censorship is separate. I Mm -hmm. work with teachers, with libraries, with uh, with politicians, with advocacy groups in my role as an author, as a citizen. To me, that's advocacy work and I pursue that separately as an author, which to me being an author and being a writer are are different things. Mm -hmm. So like to me, that's what i use my advocacy for and my weight as an author as a citizen, to go and visit schools, visit libraries, and make sure I'm doing those things as a public person to, you know, to keep pressure on city councils and school boards to, you know, to fight these book bans and, and, and to support libraries and teachers. Mm-hmm. But as a writer, I want to make sure that I'm not self-censoring, that I'm not trying to write something out of fear, Or write something that I'm hoping will never be banned. Or that I'm going to censor myself. Or write something in that hopes that it won't be banned. Or that it won't be offensive. Or that I'm going to limit myself out of fear. Because that's really what these things are about. Yes. It's about taking books off the shelves. But it's also about stopping me before I even get started. Yes, it is. So that's what I think writers have to be worried from. It's like to be, you know, vocal. And to advocate. And to, you know, do fight this thing as an advocate and as an author, but as a writer, when it's you by yourself, is to not let them stop you before you even get started.
0: Beautifully put. And so important and covers that responsibility, I think we have now to advocate, but to do it it with the greatest of professionalism and in uh, the work we do with libraries, the work we do with publishers, but to write, what we believe, write what we know, literally, without fear or favor. And thank you. I appreciate that so much. I think it's going to give a lot of people a lot of courage. And I think we need a lot of courage right now. Absolutely. Yeah. So the coming of age novel has so much appeal and so much so that I've read multiple times that young adult literature is mostly read by adults, <laughs> the the biggest, the biggest audience is still adults. So let's talk about the actual appeal of it. Um, Much of, of YA, at least in my pretty extensive experience reading it, is this coming of age concept. But it's also usually written in the I voice. And in the two YA novels of yours, you use the third person. So it's coming of age, but it's with that overview that that flyover that up here omniscient look. So can we talk about that and the advantages of writing from the third person when you're writing in coming of age? Is that a cocktail that you just really love or I mean what was your thinking there? And there are there advantages and disadvantages of writing first person, third person in this coming of age concept.
1: Oh for sure. For me the third person close omniscient narration just always feels the most natural for me Mm -hmm. so I think I just kind of gravitate towards that and also I think that's just always been like a natural oral storytellers point of view whenever I hear somebody tell me a story it always seems to be in that point of view Mm -hmm. when they tell cautionary tales and they tell fairy tales it's always from that distance and in that narrative voice so I've just always enjoyed stories told from that point of view so for me it's like kind of my default and how I love to receive read hear stories is from that from that distance that kind of moves back and forth from really really close to the character and then able to pull back and kind of give you this overview and this distance where you get to see a character move and think and act and I've always just kind of loved that and you know I mean it just as a as a writer I just Feel for me, I have this ability to, you know, close the distance on a character really quick and then pull back and give the reader all sorts of, all sorts of, you know, deep secrets and then pull back and show, like, oh, this is what the character also doesn't see and give them this, this really, you know, spectral view of what's happening in the story and in the world around them that I just don't feel as a writer I've been able to gain access with first person. Although mm-hmm. I do write a lot in second person too, which I think is just the fun a fun way to write a story and put them in this, you know, almost choose your own adventure style writing where I put them right inside the character and have them be the you character, which I do in a little bit in the flash fiction pieces in the bro cards, which yes. I love doing.
0: Although I, I can only <laughs> it, do it, it for a little.
1: Yeah. I love doing that, but you can only do it for a little bit, at least me. And I always find that to become kind of exhausting after a while. So I always do it in short spurts.
0: Yes, it reads like rocket fuel, and I bet it feels like rocket fuel when you're you like you can just do do it for so long. But it works beautifully. It's so it's so propulsive uh, in this new book. So as we wrap this up, I was thinking as you were talking about an interview I did recently with a with Lamia H, who's a she's Muslim, she's queer, she's wearing a hijab, and she's living in the United States. She's writing about. Her experience, and one of the things she said to me was that she feels that being on the outside, and she is, by her own definition, very much on the outside, and I think we would agree that we've put her on the outside, not on the inside of of American culture yet. She said that it has some real advantages to writing. And, you know, it would be a lovely world if no one was writing from the outside, the borderlands, being excluded. What are the writer's tools you have on you from writing from who you are and where you are on the borderlands of of American culture?
1: I mean, there's so many different ways to kind of answer that question. Being like the outside of, of dominant white American culture from being right. in the Southwest, which isn't like the dominant literary landscape and culture and then just even as a writer and then predominant writers uh, like writerly culture like I'm not an academic I didn't come from a world of books like I've been in the military I am uh, been a mechanic for most of my life which I think gives me a much different background than many of uh, my writer colleagues and I think that uh, that has informed my writing probably more than anything else. As far as technically how I write, how I view writing as a mechanic, it's made me super non-precious about writing and how I view writing as a as craft. That's really informed how I write. As far as being able to look at a manuscript, see something that doesn't work, and then toil and work on it to make it kind of as good as I can without feeling like uh, like whatever I'm doing is just like the super really precious thing. I'm like, oh, that doesn't work. And I'll easily redo an entire draft and not really think too hard about all the labor I've put into it and feel overly sad about, you know, trashing a first draft, which I have a lot of friends, have a lot of issues with it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love this answer. And I'm going to have to follow up with it. The (laughs) idea of the mechanic in you, the idea of the skilled mechanic utilizing those eyes, those hands, literally on a piece of, of writing, is as practical and direct a concept as I've ever had put to me. So did you understand that when you started to first write? Like, what was the first time you said to yourself, oh, this is my mechanic self doing this editing? This is, like, is it was it conscious or did you laugh, you know, three quarters of the way through your first story collection going, I think there's a little bit of mechanic skills going on here because this is... Like not, I'm not sentimental about this word. this, this these words, they don't work. They got to go. It's like a bad carburetor. Boop, gone out. So, w- <laughs> talk to me about this, please.
1: It was kind of in workshop. I realized it. We were. I was an undergrad. We were doing workshop, and uh, you know, everybody turns in their stories. You get back your notes, and you start doing your revisions. And you know, I had all my. I turned in my story. I got notes from everybody and everybody's making the little comments. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. This makes sense. And I went and I did a revision. I turned a completely different revision into my writing professor. And the story was, you know, dramatically changed. And I sat down with, uh, you know, with the professor. And he's like, oh, this is much different. You made a lot of improvements. And me, and me and her were talking back and forth. And she said, oh, usually, you know, when you get a second draft from somebody, there's very minimal changes. She's like, you made a lot of wholesale changes. I was like, oh, yeah, of course I did. I had this note from you, this note from some of the students in the class, and a lot of them made sense, so I changed them. And she talked to me about how how usually it takes a long time for a writer to get there. I was like, I didn't understand why. You said this didn't work, this didn't work, and I looked at it. And, of course, they weren't working, so I took them out, and I didn't understand what the confusion was. And then she says, she's like, well, we started talking about my background. he's like, oh, well, it kind of makes sense. She pointed out to me. She's like, oh, well, you're a mechanic. This kind of makes sense. It wasn't working. The part wasn't working. You just removed it and put a new one in and now it's working. I was like, oh, that makes sense. So she was the one who actually pointed it out to me versus, versus me coming to the epiphany on my own. She's the one I kind of pointed. It's like, oh, well, this kind of makes sense if you're a maintainer that you're just fixing broken things and it didn't work. So obviously you would just do something different. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's kind of obvious
0: best editing advice I have ever gotten in an mm-hmm. interview thank you Matt that was lovely and I am going to keep that uh, and think about that and hold that to my heart it is a uh, it is a great piece of advice oh, Act like a mechanic yeah uh, <laughs> all right well good luck with the book it's it's a joy to read and I'm just so delighted to be able to talk with you thank you so oh, pleasure much pleasure is mine thank you The writer is Matt Mendez. The book is The Broke Hearts, just out from Athenaeum. See more on him at mattmendez.com. I'm Marion Roach Smith, and you've been listening to Cordy. Cordy is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more in the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com, the home of the Memoir Project, where writers get their needs met through online classes and how to write memoir. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow Cordy wherever you get your podcasts and listen to it wherever you go. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It helps others to find their way to their writing lives.